quick show of hands, how many of you, when you were in elementary school and your elementary school teacher asked you what you wanted to do for a career when you grew up, how many of you are doing that right now? Fantastic. A few of the pilots raised their hand. Y'all get the cool job. How many of you wanted to be theologians? Raise your hand. Anybody? No? Fine. Did you realize that all of you are theologians? Here's a quote from the late Dr. R.C. Sproul. He says this, No Christian can avoid theology. Every Christian is a theologian. Perhaps not a theologian in the technical or professional sense, but a theologian nevertheless. The issue for Christians is not whether we're going to be theologians, but whether we're going to be good theologians or bad ones. It's easy to say that we know things about God. It's much more difficult to ascertain whether we know the right things about God. In the fourth century, a scribe copying what we now call Revelation wrote atop the first page a revelation of John. And he also wrote in the margin the Greek words that translate John the theologian. Dr. Eugene Peterson says this about the appropriateness of ascribing that title to John. He says, John is a theologian whose entire mind is saturated with the thoughts of God, his whole being staggered by a vision of God, the world-making, salvation-shaping word of God is heard and pondered and expressed. He, John, is God-intoxicated, God-possessed, God-articulate. Beloved, this morning as we come and we order our common life together around the word of God, we don't just do this to hear an encouraging word that we pray that God would encourage our weak and faltering spirits. And we don't do this to uh, simply check a box off and say we've done our religious obligation. No, the reason that we order our corporate life together, our common and shared life together around the word of God is so that God would make us people who love him, who, who live for him, and who know him, and know him as he revealed himself most poignantly in his son, Jesus. How does God reveal himself to us this morning? That's the, that's the content of what we see in John's first epistle. In the first chapter, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2, let's stand together as we hear God's word read. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for also for the sins of the whole world. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. In your kindness, O God, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted because you love us. And that love means you're not going to leave us alone until we look like Jesus. So would we see him and him only? For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Be seated. Here's the progression of the text that I want to follow. In verse 5, we see, God, we see John laying out foundational truth about God. I want to continue on from that. Uh, your program says something slightly different. I changed my mind, which I am prone to do. Laura's just learned to roll her eyes at me. So I want to move from foundational truths about God to faulty assumptions that we make about God, and then finally conclude by looking at the faithfulness of Jesus. If you were to do a man-on-the-street type survey and go around and walk up to people and say, um, who or what is God, what are the various answers you might get? If you found someone who identifies themselves as an atheist after the yelling and the screaming stopped, you may get something like this, um, that there is no God. There is, uh, there's no God, any God, and belief in this idea of a God is either a work of fiction or a sense of delusion. If you walked up to someone on the street who identifies themselves in a more agnostic sense, they may say that uh, belief in God and knowledge of any of his attributes is an unknowable thing. After all, agnostic would literally mean, we don't know. It's unknowable. Others still may say that God's kind of like Santa Claus. He sees you when you're sleeping and he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been well, you know how the song goes. For some others still, God may be the cosmic karma of the universe, all that is good and true. For others, maybe he's just a stern watchman. 
or an absent-minded grandfather or a tinkerer like a watchmaker who set the world in motion but then went on to other projects in other galaxies and left this one to run on its dial. If you were to consult the catechism of our church, it would ask the question, what is God? And the answer would be, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. John, when beginning to unpack the definition, uh, demonstrates the mark of a great teacher. Do you know what the mark of a great teacher is? The mark of a great teacher is being able to say something in a clear way, not a lot of words. John gives us a, a short definition indeed, but it's incredibly accurate. It's very true. John says in verse 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. For John, instead of bringing all of the biblical descriptive names of God, there are 192 of them. And instead of bringing all of the descriptors and the, and the attributes of God, there are 152 of those in the Bible. John goes with light. So in the Old Testament, when the word light would be used to describe something, it would be both um, a quality, it would be uh, symbolizing communication, what God is revealing about himself, and it also would talk about character. Who is God? Who is God really? Um, as you look in the Old Testament, you see that uh, God communicated himself in the, in the Old Testament through the burning bush, through uh, uh, with Moses as he revealed himself to Moses through pillars of cloud and fire to guide the Israelites. And at the temple and tabernacle, fire is presented in golden lampstands. In the Psalms, we hear that God is our light and our salvation. And in the New Testament, Jesus said that he was the light of the world and that whoever believes in him may not remain uh, in darkness. Now, when we think about God being light in terms of, uh, in terms of his character, there's two things that we see. And again, this is pulling from all of the witness of Scripture into this very loaded definition that God, give, that God gave John to give the people for whom John was writing this letter. When God says that he, when John says that, that God is light, he means from God's character that he's both pure morally, there's no evil in God, there's no, there's no dubious intent in God's character, and he's also pure uh, in the sense that there's no error, no mistake. There's never a whoops in anything that God does. Now, I, I say all of that because 
John goes on to, to double down, as it were. In, in, the, in the Greek, John uses a, a, a way to emphatically say, in him there is no darkness at all. There's, there's no darkness. There's none. John is saying that, that God's positive perfections, in him there's, there's no shade. There's no speck. There's no stain of moral imperfection in God at all. This is incredibly important truth to think about. Why? Look, because you and I are always prone to deal with the wound of Eden, right? The wound of Eden is, did God say in, the, in, in the, those, those very first days, doubt and suspicion about the goodness and the character of God were woven in. Our first parents went and sowed fig leaves for, the, to, for themselves because they were naked and they were ashamed and they hid from God. And that whole idea of if God loved you, if God loved you, he would want you to be happy. And so the wound of Eden is, is for us to doubt the very heart of God. It's important to remember this when we, when we see things going wrong in the world and we think somehow that God has messed things up. When we think that things are too far beyond redemption, when we wrestle with all that is bad in the world and all that is bad that has happened to us. Even though we don't see how the equation is going to work. even though it doesn't make sense to us, even though we can't see how good is going to come from it. We have to fight back against that taking us down the road of my circumstances are what define who God is. You can't go down the road of saying that your circumstances thus define who God is. If that's true, then every time you're having a good day, God loves you. And every time something bad happens, God's mad at you. Your circumstances don't define who God is. The scriptures, God has revealed himself in the scriptures as who he is. And he's not the cosmic trickster of the galaxy. He's not stringing you along with good things only to lead you to a trap and then have the world fall out from under you. It's this absolute purity of God's character, a God who is absolutely free from stain, from blemish, from imperfection, that leads us into this whole next discussion. But if you don't get this point about God, nothing else about God makes sense, right? Everything that we know, everything that we do is all flowing out of who we know God to be. If we know God to be good, then we can trust him when the world seems to say otherwise. But if the wound of Eden is still nipping at our heels, did God really say? Did God really promise? Those become incredibly dark days. 
John is going to go and begin to make the argument in this letter that God is both light and God is love. He's going to talk about the love of God more explicitly a little bit later on in the letter. In the letter. But for now, I want you to understand this point. To say that God is all love but no light, no justice, no, no, no moral purity, right? To say that God is all love but no light means that God will take you just the way you are without seriously dealing with the sin that is in you, which, if we're keeping score, is no real love at all. That's not love to leave you dying. It's not love to leave you dead inside. It's not love. It may feel like it, but it's not. Conversely, to say that God is all light with no love would mean what hope do we have? If there, if there, is, simply, if there is simply a moral standard that God has set for the universe, but there is no love at the headwaters of the character and the nature of God, to say that God is simply all justice and all moral purity, what hope do any of us have? But... God is both light and love, and this is the heart of the gospel. The light of God's holiness will not stand for sin, and the love of God sends Jesus to stand in our place. But then this is where John pastorally now comes alongside of the church. Here's some faulty assumptions that we can have about God for people who have been redeemed from our sin, for people who have, who have seen the light of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who have, who have experienced the grace of God in our lives. There are some faulty things that can come into our thinking. And it may seem like here in this section of verses 6 through 10 that John is saying the same thing, and he's not. He's saying two different things. Here's the first thing. What does it mean to live in the light of Christ. What does it mean to live in the light of the gospel? Here's the first faulty assumption that it can be easy to make. The first faulty assumption is that God doesn't see our sin so we can be brazen and keep doing it. Look at what he says. If we say, so he's saying it's a conditional, right? If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say that we are, that we are disciples of Jesus, and we've said, thanks God for saving me, back to your regular schedule programming, back to my life, lived my way where I can do anything that I want, anything that pleases me, anything that satisfies me, anything that gives me a moment of pleasure. I can become as self-consumed as I want. That is not the gospel. That is not the Christian life. And John says, look, if we say we have fellowship with God, 
But then we continue to walk in darkness. We lie. We're lying. We lie and we don't practice the truth. What's the, what's the corrective for this? The corrective for this, John says in verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Disciples of Jesus, those who are faithfully following Jesus, those who have been transformed by the gospel as they've realized that they had nothing, that they were lost and that they were dead and God graciously God graciously woke them from their death and breathed his life into their corpse. For those people, disciples of Jesus, are faithfully and actively fleeing sin. This means that we are availing ourselves of all the ways of knowing who God is and who we really are. We're studying the word to learn about what God has said. This is what this is what life looks like. This is what holiness looks like. We're availing ourselves of all the things that God has given us through the the preaching of the word, through participation in the sacraments, through the life of the body of Christ itself. And all of this flows together under one central thing that we are confident that the blood of Jesus has covered all of our sin. This is the glorious hope of the gospel, that the blood of Jesus has covered and cleansed all of the sin that is in the world. This means that the power of sin held over us has been broken and that we can pursue holiness and righteousness because the spirit of the living Christ dwells within us. But of course, obviously, John only meant some sins some of the time, right? Does John mean that the sin of adultery, bearing false witness, coarse joking, deceit, envy, fraud, gossip, holding a grudge, idleness, judgmentalism, killing the innocent, lying, malice, not keeping oaths, oppressing the poor, prayerlessness, quarreling, returning insult for insult, slander, trust in riches, unlawful divorce, violence? Does that mean that all of those things are covered? Yes. Does he mean that the sin of loving the world, loving yourself, not loving your neighbor or enemy or fellow Christian or God? Yes. He means that all of it, all of it is covered. Here's the principle. The problem, when people say Christians are hypocrites, right, the problem is, is not that the problem is not that we sin. The problem is that we make too little of it. We excuse it, we wipe it away, we, we push it to the side, we, we, we present ourselves as more than we actually are. Christians are the ones who know their hearts, know they sin, know that there is no good in them apart from the good that God is working in them through Jesus. But you can't 
You can't continue to say, I'm going to continue to bear false witness, engage in adultery, practice deceit, or anything else that was on the list, because, hey, it's covered, so it doesn't matter. Do you know how much it matters? Jesus bled on that tree. Jesus, the sinless one, died so that you would be freed from all of those things. That's how much it matters. Here's the second um, kind of faulty assumption. Um, One is to say that God doesn't see our sin. The other is to say that um, God doesn't really want us to care about our sin. We can be blind to seeing it and, and stopping it. I read this quote this week. Uh, Russian novelist um, Ivan Chernigev uh, says this, and maybe you can relate to it. Uh, he says, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it's terrible. Look at what he says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if we say, now that I'm a Christian, I don't have any sin. Or what's more likely is for those that have walked with God for a long period of time, we lose lose the desire to be quick to repent. We lose the desire to see ourselves as, uh, as honestly as the scriptures see us. We become calloused to our own sin. We, we, become, uh, we, we become unaware of our own sin. I was watching someone cook something in the kitchen one time, and they just reached in the oven and grabbed a hot plate that was sitting inside an oven and just pulled it out with their bare hands and set it on top of the stove. And how do you do that? Years and years and years of going for the same plate had built up calluses. They didn't feel it anymore. And that's the danger for Christians, isn't it? It's the danger for you and I as we've become calloused and blind to our own sin. Rather than asking God, search me and know my heart, O God. Instead, there's a I'm pretty good. I'm all right. I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it's terrible. The Bible says this about humanity. We were created both, uh, as, as both majestic image bearers of God, and sin has also wrought monstrous consequences in our lives. Um, in, a, in the majesty of our humanity, um, we were created in the image and the likeness of God, capable of glorious and grand things, creative, amazing, beautiful, wonderful. But there is also a monstrousness that is a part of us because of what sin has done to us. Uh, we are full of deceit. Calvin said that the, the, the human heart was an idol-making factory. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7 that out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. The prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart, of, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
Beloved, if you don't think you have anything to confess, if you don't think there's any sin abiding in your heart, I think that you need to take a closer look. Now, the the difference is it may have changed, right? It may have gone from just those outward actions of I really shouldn't have said that or I really shouldn't have done that down to more deeper, more insidious things. Like what was the motive of my heart in doing that? You see in our prayer of confession this morning, forgive me for what I said. Forgive me for what I almost said. It's not just dodge one. I didn't let that come out of my mouth. It's why was there a temptation for that to come out of my mouth in the first place? What's actually going on in my heart? That's why, by the way, that engaging in regular practices of repentance is so critical for the Christian life. I'm not asking you to go through religious motions. I'm asking you to have God search you and know you and expose the things that are not of God to you so that it can be borne out in confession and in repentance. It's not just the action of saying, wow, I was wrong, but it's the action of, wow, I'm really sorry. I don't want to be that anymore. I don't want to minimize my sin. I don't want to turn a blind eye to my sin. I don't want to hide it or overcompensate for it. I want to repent of my sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. Why doesn't it say he's faithful and merciful? Because he's just. It's just that you and I weren't the recipients of his justice. Jesus was. He's faithful and he's just. Beloved, we don't, we want to live the lives of a repentant people. It's not living under some sort of guilt complex. It's simply owning this is who I really am and this is what I really do. And this is why I really need Jesus. So this story may or may not be true, but it's a delightful story nonetheless. It's a story about uh, Spurgeon. It is said that a man who claimed to be without sin once confronted Charles Spurgeon and uh, and told him that I, I I am now sinless. And Spurgeon was intrigued. So the preacher invited this man home for dinner. And after hearing the claims through, Spurgeon arose from his chair, picked up his glass of water, and threw it across the table into the man's face. Now, as the story goes, immediately and and quite understandably, um, this perfect man showed his imperfections, causing quite a scene, allowing his anger and his language to cross all, cross all lines of courtesy and propriety. To which Spurgeon replied, Ah, you see, the old man within is not as dead as you claim. He had simply fainted, and I have revived him with but a glass of water. If we say we have no sin, 
we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word isn't in us. Look, I don't know. Um, we get really good at, at putting on masks and we get really good at looking like we've got it all held together. And I don't know what the, uh, what the water across the face moment is for you, but I know it's there. Maybe something that your spouse says, maybe something that your kids do, maybe something that happens in your job or that happens at your school or just happens in your own heart when no one else is looking. There's something going on. And you don't have to be ashamed of that. You're not fooling God. Why do you think that you have to keep on fooling yourself? Because in fact, when you ask the question, who is God? What is God? God is not the absent-minded, uh, the absent-minded grandfather. He's not the watchmaker who's gone on and left the world. He is a faithful, loving father who has sent his son, Jesus. And John wants you to hear that. Because we've said that God is light in him. There is no room for sin in the Christian life. So what is the hope that we have from being crushed by the weightiness of God's command? What is the comfort for those who find holiness to be something that always seems more of a fanciful idea than a reality? Beloved, it is this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Beloved, it is grace. The hope for us, the hope for you and I is grace. But it's not grace as a commodity, nor is it grace as an abstract idea. It is grace in Jesus Christ. This is what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, God's grace to us is Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. It is, it is the atonement of Jesus. It is Jesus as the propitiation, as the substitute for our sin. But it is not these things as abstract concepts. Remember at the beginning I said, I want to make sure that you are all good theologians. And good theologians are not ones who simply trade in abstract principles, but anchor their lives on concrete realities. Jesus Christ himself, clothed as he is in his gospel work, is the atonement for us. Our gospel hope is not in a concept or idea, but in a person, our faithful advocate, Jesus some of you may have grown up um, thinking that God works this way. Um, Christ, uh, as one who by his sacrifice persuades a wrathful father to pardon us in view of what Jesus has done. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. If you think that God, if you think that grace was an afterthought for God, 
and not at the very heart of God, you'll never see that God's heart is for you while simultaneously maintaining his holiness and his purity. If you think that there's something else that, that really at the headwaters of it all is wrath or the headwaters of, it's all, of it all is indifference or the headwaters of it all is just moral purity with, with no regard to you and I, if you think that grace was an afterthought rather than being the very core, the very essence of who God is, you will never be able to see that God's heart is for you. And so what did he do? He sent Jesus as one of us, clothed him in our flesh, and, and, and brought him into our world. Jesus became one of us so that we might become one with him. Beloved, holiness should not be ignored. There are real warnings in here today. John is warning us that you can't, you can't say that you belong to God but live as you please. You can't say that you, that you belong to God but you're blind to all the things that God still wants to do and change in your heart and in your life. Holiness should not be ignored in the sense of continuing to walk in darkness, nor should holiness simply be reduced to a checklist of refraining from drink and chew and going with girls who do. Holiness is pursued by loving the things that God has said are lovely. And pursuing those things as more satisfying than anything else this world has or could offer. Jesus is our faithful advocate. He not only gave his life for us on the cross, but he's never ever lost interest in us as he intercedes and advocates for us even now. He will never be finished advocating for you. He will never be finished advocating for you. No matter how many times you pray the same prayer and say, God, I've messed up again. Jesus says he's mine. No matter how many times you go and you say, I can't believe I've gone so far and messed up so much, he says he's mine. Jesus has never lost interest in you and has never done advocating for you. So why continue to walk in darkness? Why settle when the God of heaven and earth has said, my life for yours? I want you to be good theologians. I want you to see God as he really is, thrice holy and full of grace and mercy. I want us to be able to see our hearts as they really are, sin-sick and constantly deceptive, always in need of mercy. And I want you to see Jesus, God's Son, who gave himself so that not only yours and my needs of mercy would be met, but the lavish and abundant riches of his grace would be found in us as well. I want you to be needy and keep on being needy. And I want you to see God always, always, always able to meet your need 
far more than you could ask or think.